0: We are in Acts, Acts chapter six this morning, but I do want to say a word about Armistice Day. Um, If you're old enough to remember the term, that's too bad for you, Um, because it hasn't been Armistice Day since 1954, and uh, they they made it officially Veterans Day in 1954. But um, the start of Veterans Day, the start of Armistice Day, is basically um, to commemorate the end of World War I, uh, the peace treaty with Germany, the armistice, uh, and that's what armistice means, to an agreement to stop fighting. The agreement with Germany to stop fighting, as far as World War I was concerned, happened uh, at the 11th hour on the 11th day of the 11th month, which would be? November 11th, and so that's why we commemorate this particular day. It's also been called Remembrance Day. Other other, um, other countries uh, observe this as well. And it was basically to commemorate the soldiers that fought And in uh, World War I. Um, Woodrow Wilson uh, made a proclamation exactly one year later, uh, gave a speech in regards to um, Armistice Day, and He said, "A year ago today, our enemies laid down their arms in accordance with an armistice, which rendered them impotent to renew hostilities, and gave to the world an assured opportunity to reconstruct its shattered order and to work out in peace a new and more, uh, a new and more just set of international relations. The soldiers and peop- people of the European Allies had fought and endured for more than four years to uphold the barrier of civilization against the aggressions of armed forces." We ourselves have been in the conflict more than a year and a half. With splendid forgetfulness, with mere personal concerns, we remodeled our industry, concentrated our financial resources, increased our agricultural output, and assembled a great army, so that in the last, our power was a decisive factor in the victory. We were able to bring the vast resources, material, and, more, and morale uh, of a great and free people to the assistance of our associates in Europe, who had suffered and sacrificed without limit in the cause for which we fought. Out of this victory, there arose new possibilities of political freedom and economic concert. The war showed us that the the strength of great nations acting together for a high purpose and the victory of arms foretells the enduring conquest which can be made in peace when nations act justly and in furtherance to the common interests of men. To us in America, the reflections of Armistice Day will be filled with solemn pride in the heroism of those who died in their country's service. And with gratitude for the victory, both because of the thing uh, from uh, from it has freed us, and because of the opportunity it has given America to show her sympathy with peace and justice in the councils of nations. So initially, it was the anniversary of the end of World War One, um, and again, uh, it would be uh, it would Kelvin Coolidge uh, in uh, nineteen twenty six. Would make it an official holiday. He called it a holiday of peace, is what he called it. And then um, Veterans Day was so named by uh, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, and it was designed to honor all veterans, not just the not just World War One uh, veterans, but to honor all veterans and honor their service. Memorial Day honors those who died. Veterans Day honors those who served, and um, and uh, so. Um, What we would like to do, if you have served in the armed forces, we would like to have you stand and be recognized at this time, if you would, please. Okay. All right. Round of applause. huh? Uh, again a day of remembrance for those who are our veterans and those who are currently serving and uh, just uh, thankful for men and women who are willing to um, you know, put their lives on the line for us to retain the freedoms that we have and even though many of these freedoms in our own country have been have been abused um, uh, we still do have those freedoms, and we're thankful for that very, very much. Acts chapter 6 is where we are this morning, and um, up to this particular point, studying the book of Acts, Jesus has promised, uh, he says, I'm leaving, but I'm going to send another comforter like unto myself. He promises this, the comforter does come, he says, wait in Jerusalem, as he's ascending, he says, wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes uh, at Pentecost, 10 days after Jesus' ascension, windstorm filled the house. Uh, the apostles began to speak in a language unknown to them, but it was a sign that the Holy Spirit had arrived. Uh, God used this same sign to prove to the Jews that Samaritans and Gentiles could be saved. As Peter and John saw this unravel at, uh, it, with the Samaritans and at Cornelius' house, the comment would be, what has happened to the Samaritans, what has happened to the Gentiles, is the same as on us at the beginning. Peter would preach at the day of Pentecost, and he preached about this being God's deliberate plan that Jesus would die on the cross, but he said, it's your wicked hands that turned him over to the Romans, and, but it was impossible for death to hold him. Uh, he got quite a response, the people gladly received the word, 3,000 were baptized, And then from that point on, daily in the temple, uh, the apostles would teach and they would be exposed to the apostles' doctrine and the apostles' teaching. And basically what is happening at this particular point is, I believe, the city of Jerusalem, which was responsible for the death two to three months earlier, for the death of the Messiah, they are getting a second chance. And again, the place was full of people because of the Feast of Pentecost, from all different nations, from all different areas, uh, Jewish men coming to the temple and so forth. And that's exactly where the apostles are as far as preaching and teaching is concerned. Uh, the miracles and healing are taking place in the temple courtyard. Uh, and, and people are, are gathering by multitudes. And Peter says, I, I don't know what, why are you so surprised at this? Why, why do you marvel? Uh, as if we did this, we didn't do this. You've, you've seen this before. This is happening because Jesus of Nazareth is alive and well. Well, the Sadducees and the temple leaders do not like this, so they try to stop them. And they call them together and tell them that they need to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. We don't want to hear that name anymore. Uh, He's dead. He's gone. We don't want to hear that name anymore. And we don't want to hear any more about the resurrection. And of course, those two things, Jesus and the resurrection, are sort of linked together (laughs) quite a bit. The response from Peter and John was, should we listen to you or should we listen to God? And so they were threatened and let go. And then the prayer of the apostles and the prayer of God's people was, please, Lord, hear their threats. Give us boldness and keep those miracles coming. And that is exactly what happened. 5,000, the Bible says 5,000 men were added to the church and added to the congregation. Uh, we Barnabas' his name comes up as mentioned as one who sold everything uh, and received some notoriety. Sold his house and he landed land and gave the money to the apostles. Ananias and Sapphira tried to pretend to duplicate that feat so they could get some attention and notoriety for themselves. Peter says, "Satan has filled your hearts." You've not lied to men. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. You've lied to God. You're putting God to the test. He tells Sapphira, you're putting God to the test. It's like, you th- by putting him to the test means that um, you think he's just going to let this go. You think he's not going to do something. And you're pushing him to do something or to stop you or to reveal this. And both Ananias and Sapphira, three hours apart, fell down dead. The miracles continue, and the Bible says multitudes of men and women and children were added. So you have 3,000 baptized, and then 5,000 men, now multitudes of men and women. Many of these people, with the Feast of Pentecost, many of these have not returned home. Many of these are still staying on the premises. They're still staying in Jerusalem, and they're being provided for by the, uh, by the believers there in Jerusalem. And, and people are coming from other towns and cities, bringing their sick to uh, to the temple area and into Jerusalem because they he- hear of the healings that are taking place and many are coming. So this time the Sanhedrin takes the apostles and they put them in prison, this time hoping the next day to have some kind of you know, public hearing about this matter. And um, while in the prison, the angel comes and opens the prison doors and brought them out. And uh, it doesn't say that the... Uh, A deep sleep fell upon the uh, guards or anything like that. Uh, They're actually not even mentioned, so the guards were not even disturbed, which again makes me think, how did they get out without being seen or disturbed? How cool is that? That makes it even a better miracle. It's not just that they opened the doors and let them out. We walked right past you, and you never saw us. I like that. And so that's uh, the doors open. The, angel, the angels brought them out, never disturbing the guards at all. And where'd they go? Right back to the temple. Well, again, the Sanhedrin's looking for them. They go to the prison. They found everything locked up like it's supposed to be, but no prisoners inside. Where are they? Well, of course, they're in the temple. Uh, they're healing, they're preaching, they're teaching the people that are there. And so literally, they came fearing the multitudes. And said, hey, uh, would you guys please come with us? They basically asked them gently to come with them and to appear before the Sanhedrin. And they, accused, they were accused of, you're filling Jerusalem with your teaching. Well, that's good. I'm glad you feel that way because that's what Jesus asked us to do. Okay? Uh, go into Jerusalem and preach the gospel. You know, uh, and, and so this is what we're doing. So good. I'm glad you think that. And, and you're, you're blaming us for this man's blood. And they're like, "Um, yep, that would be correct also. (laughs) And so, well, at least they got the message. I mean, the Sanhedrin got the message pretty well that you're filling Jerusalem with this teaching about this Jesus and you're blaming us for his blood. And they said yes, and Peter continued on and explained to them that this is what you've done. And even talking about the fact that even you can have forgiveness of sins if you would repent and change your mind about who Jesus is, God is giving you a second chance. And it says they were cut to the heart. And the phrase there doesn't mean conviction. It means they were angry. It was like somebody took a saw to their heart. And it's like, I heard. It was like pain to the point. It was like making them mad. The more they heard, the madder they got. And, and it's like, they it came to the conclusion. It's like, okay, we told them not to preach, and they do that anyways. Uh, they're, they're never going to shut up. We're, we, we've got to kill them. And so their decision that they make is we must kill these, kill these men. Gamaliel then speaks up, who is a member of the Sanhedrin, he's a Pharisee, he's a rabbi with much esteem as far as the Jewish people are concerned. And he basically says, Be careful what you do next. And so Gamaliel, uh, you know, whether he becomes a believer or not, I would like to think he did. Uh, he still was held in high esteem by the, uh, by the Jewish leaders and so forth. And, and it seems like if he had converted to Christianity, that would have, you know, damaged that particular reputation. But Gamaliel says, be careful what you do next. If it be the works of men, it'll come to nothing. All these other people, and he mentions two in particular, but he said they rebelled. And when these men were dead, their their uprising, their rebellion fizzled and ended. Their followers were dispersed and that was the end of it. Well, in this particular case, the leader, Jesus, is dead and they're more fired up than they've been when he was alive. They're more on fire for God because of the Holy Spirit than, than when Jesus was actually present with them. And, and it says, but it be, if it be of God, you cannot stop it. Well, they beat the apostles, they beat them and they let them go. And it says that as they left, it says they left rejoicing, that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus that it was an honor you know they were they were suffering for the cause of Christ and they considered that an honor and they continued to preach and teach about Jesus as they ceased not daily in the temple and in every house daily verse number 42 of chapter 5 daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ chapter 6 and in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Here we go again. It's kind of like the ups and downs. It's like, it's like, uh, <laughs> it's almost like things are going too good, something bad has to happen, okay? Or it's like, hmm, uh, there, yeah, there's. The devil is at work, and, and everything's going well. It's like 5,000 are become believers, and 3,000 are baptized. And, and then we have Ananias and Sapphira trying to pretend to be something they're not, the, uh, the frauds, the fake, the spiritual frauds. And they want to get in on all the glory and all the stuff, and it, and it, but it's not real. It's all pretense. It's not sincere. It's not genuine. And They die. And things pick right back up. And then it's like, okay, now we have a little bit of disgruntlement. And it is kind of interesting, uh, this, this whole idea. Um, let, me, let me read some verses to you that precede this. and Because some, sometimes people go, oh, well, we should have our church just like the church in the book of Acts. And we should pattern our church. up. No. No. There's a lot of good things about the church in the book of Acts. But it was unique, and it's, you know, and it's not to be patterned after anything of that nature. But, but notice, please, just uh, Acts chapter 2, verse number 44, says, When they believed, they were together and had all things in common. They sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men and as everyone had need. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Oh, that's warm and fuzzy, okay? Uh, chapter 4, verse 32. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart, of one soul. Neither said any of them of aught of the things which they possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Verse 34. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands and houses sold them and brought the prices that things that were sold, and they laid them down at the apostles' feet. Distribution was made to every man according to their need. Everything's so good. Everything's so wonderful. And chapter 6, verse 1, in those days, the number of the disciples was multiplied. There rose a murmuring. <laughs> Seems to be in the church, there's always going to be frauds. There's always going to be complaint. Well, everything, everybody, no, it doesn't, might have it, but it doesn't last. And the devil doesn't like it to last. And the devil doesn't want it to last. And so the devil stirs up and causes problems and causes difficulty. And it says there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews. Well, what's interesting about this Grecians versus Hebrews stuff is, first of all, it says, in those days, same time that Ananias and Sapphira are being struck dead, same time that uh, Peter and John are being held accountable and being beaten, same time as the multitudes are being added, same time as the teachings going on and miracles are taking place, same time here in those days, all those things are happening. Disciples continue to be multiplied. Uh, and, um, but there's murmuring about neglect. The Grecians against the Hebrews. Now, uh, just so you know this, this is Jew versus Jew, not Gentile versus Jew. The Grecians are not Gentiles. The Grecians are Jews who adopted uh, the Roman way of life. Uh, they, they don't speak Hebrew anymore. They speak Greek, okay? And so it's basically we're, we're Hebrews who have kept our, uh, our national identity and, and we hold strongly to the Hebrew faith and the Hebrew language and so forth. And these are guys and these are people most likely outsiders from Jerusalem, most likely from some of these cities and places round about that have come. And uh, they have, but they've adopted, it's like, well, this is the language, so we need to, we need to accept it. Um, and, and, and lest you be too hard or too strict one way or the other, it would be the same thing. It's like if, if I was, you know, if I was uh, from another country and I came to this country and for me to get along best in this country, it's best for me to uh, learn English and the way, you know, that would be seemingly the best plan. And that's what these Jews were. They were called Hellenistic Jews because they followed the pattern of the Greeks and they followed their lifestyle and they spoke Greek and they were, you know, by the devout Jews would be considered eh, kind of compromisers. You're outsiders. You know, you're you're losing your heritage. You're losing your identity, and so they spoke the Greek language, followed the Greek customs. But there, it's Jews versus Jews. Okay, so this is not this is not even a Gentile issue at this particular at this particular point. But it's a it's more of a language, a custom type of thing, and the Grecians are murmuring against the Hebrews that. I, we're not getting a fair shake on this, okay? Uh, and so what's implied is that there was a, a daily ministration, it says here, where a daily, the word ministration, interestingly enough, is the word service, and it's that word right there, okay? Uh, you will have seen this word <laughs> a number of times by the time we finish the message this morning, but it's diaconos, and it is the word that later will be translated deacon, Okay? But it is a, it's called a daily ministration or a daily service. Okay? Keyword service. Okay? And so, evidently, there was like, a, they would come and apostles and people would hand out things to them and they say, it's not fair, it's not right, it's not being done justly. Well, it doesn't say who was doing it previous. Okay? Or who's in charge of this, or who's you know, and whether it was the apostles or whatever, but they're they're being accused of favoritism, and and you like these people better, you know, and and um, I, I remember you know in, in my home and my family, uh, there were three of us: my myself, my sister, and my brother, and we were absolutely convinced, all of us, that mom and dad had favorites. I'm the oldest. And so I, I would be most accurate in the evaluation of these things. Um, and my mom clearly um, uh, favored the baby, my little brother. She favored him, and he was so special because he's, you know, he's so cute. And he's so, I'm like, Bleh. okay. Um, and so he was the favorite. And, and my dad favored my sister because she was daddy's little girl and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, poor me, I'm left out. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares. Nobody's interested, in, you know. And, and, and thus it is. Well, if you talk to my sister, she would say, well, you were dad's favorite because you were his firstborn and you're a son and, you know, guys could do things together. And the little brother, he was mom's favorite because he was the baby and she would do the yuck thing too. Um, <laughs> so, and then if you ask my little brother... He would go, I'm the one who got left out. You were dad's favorite. Mom had Kim, and you know, I'm just the third wheel. Nobody, nobody loves me. What that tells me is my mom and dad were doing a pretty good job because uh, <laughs> we were all c- confused. <laughs> and, and they were doing, they, Evidently, they were doing very, very well in this matter of uh, not playing favorites when we thought they, when we thought they were. But is it a legitimate complaint? It, it really doesn't matter whether the complaint's legitimate or not legitimate, but there's a problem. And so something needs to be done. The widows widows are being neglected. Now, that is there anything that sounds worse than that? We're neglecting widows. <laughs> and so uh, the Grecians are complaining, and so it gets to the apostles, verse number two. Uh, then the twelve, or... You know, these apostles, and of course, the twelve would have been adding Matthias to, the, to take the place of Judas and so forth. And still the terminology would be used to describe the original disciples who are now apostles. They called a the multitude of disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, find you or find among you seven men of honest report, seven men that are full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom whom you may appoint over this business. Uh, basically, in a nutshell, they say, Um, <laughs> we don't want to do this. Okay? Uh, we don't want to be responsible for this. There's other times in Scripture, for example, uh, take Moses and the, uh, the children of Israel. Okay. Two million people that he's responsible for. Okay? And when there's a problem and there's a difficulty and people come to Moses and they keep coming to Moses and the line phew, goes out the door and out the tent and out, you know. And finally his father-in-law says, you know what, you need to, you need to get some other people to help you with this. This is, this is ridiculous. And Peter and John and the others are like, okay, you realize if, if we spent all of our time distributing to make sure everybody got what they were supposed to, We've got, let's see, how many do we, now, not, obviously not everybody would have a need, but we've got 3,000, we're responding, 5,000, multitudes, are, it's like, ugh, we, would be, we wouldn't be able to do what we're supposed to do. What we, you know, and this is, it's interesting that the Sanhedrin say, I don't want you to speak anymore in the name of Jesus, I don't want you to speak anymore about the resurrection, if they had taken on this responsibility, that would have accomplished the purpose. That would have kept them from what they were supposed to be doing. And they're like, you know, we prefer not to do this. Can't we get someone else to serve in this capacity? And it's kind of a category of what is good, better, and best. And this is a good thing, but, you know, for us, we need to be doing something else. Now, he says it's not reasonable uh, that we should do this. It's a time-consuming thing. And again, he uses the term here that we should serve tables. That word serve in verse number two is the same as ministration in verse number one. It's the diaconess word, same word. And so in light of what God has asked us to do, to go teach and baptize, we need to be on the go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uh, and, and, and we have to teach, and we have to, we've got 5,000 babies or more that we need to take care of. So you need to choose from your group, choose seven men, and they need to be, you know, I want to get responsible men, honest men, that will, that will handle this for us. It's an important ministry. They're not devaluing the ministry. They're just saying it's not what we're supposed to do. Somebody else needs to pick up that responsibility and run with it. Now, uh, again, I'm very, very sensitive about this in so many different ways. Because I believe if you're involved in ministry. If, if, you're a, if, you're a, if you're a Sunday school teacher, if you're ministering in any capacity, if you're a word of life leader or, or you're working with the Passage Forward Shop or you're singing in the choir, you're teaching in the Christian school or, or you're a pastor or a school, you know, a school administrator, whatever, if you're in a leadership capacity or if you're in a serving ministry capacity, I believe that you need to serve. I believe that you need to minister. I believe that there's nothing below you. There's nothing beneath you. Anybody who says something, well, that's not in my job description. <laughs> the second you say that, you are no longer a servant. And I've had people say that to me. I've, I've had people say, well, that's, that's not in my job description. That's not what I'm supposed to do. You know, if you think you're above something, if you think you're too good for something, I'm too good to do this, or I, that, that's not my job. My job is this. And it's like, you know, you need to have a humble spirit, a servant's heart. And you end up doing lots of things that's not in your job description. It's just what needs to be done. I used to tell teachers when I would talk to them, I said, one of the main requirements is you need to have a servant's heart and you need to be extremely flexible <laughs> extremely flexible because the rules change and the and the and the, and and the and the name of the game changes all the time and it's like I, you know and so what it means is what it means is that sometimes you know I if you know I I could it's not quite lunchtime so I don't want to gross you out too soon too fast but if I told you the number of times that I cleaned up barf and puke, et cetera. And the number of times it's been all over me because of young people that I've been working with. Now some I did it to myself. I I, uh, took them to the wilds and took them around windy, windy roads after they ate breakfast and we ended up with French toast all over the place. Um, um, Or the number of times the person had an accident in the restroom. You know, and there's stuff all over the place. Well, somebody's got to clean this up. <laughs> not me. I'm the, I'm the pastor of the church. I'm not going to clean it. It's like somebody has to do it. If you're in a position, you, there's, not, there's no such thing. And so this is not what they're doing. They're not saying, oh, that's beneath us. We can't do this. Certainly they could, and certainly they probably did help from time to time. But we can't make that our main job. I, I, this is not, if that was my main job, then I can't do my main job. And so... He says, Choose men from your group, seven men known to be honest. And, and, and by the way, along the same lines, uh, some churches have left the preaching of the gospel to spend all their time ministering to the community. Now, again, I don't want you to take this one wrong either, because I think you need to do both, okay? Uh, there's a responsibility in the church to continue to teach the word of God preach the word of God, do the truth this is what we're here for now these other things are important the Pass It Forward shop is important but I shouldn't run the Pass It Forward shop okay camp is important Okay. somebody else needs to do that responsibility these are ways we minister to the community different people are involved in different areas of service because you can't lose and like I said some churches have become so community minded that they're not preaching the truth of God's word anymore and you have to have both you have to have the assistance you have to have the help you have to have the servant's heart and, so, and even these people, these people are qualified seven men known to be honest full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom now, is this the beginning, and many people suggest this is the beginning of deacons. This is where deacons got started as far as people coming into church and basically saying, you know, how can I help? How can I serve? What can I do? Uh, it's a possibility that this is a forerunner of it, but there also possibility exists that this was just a temporary office. That this is something that would work its way out and, and, and eventually be be done with, as there would be persecution in Jerusalem, and people would end up fleeing all over the place. This is something that may run its course, and then we're going to see even people like Stephen, who's involved with this, uh, in a very short amount of time. Stephen is preaching and doing miracles and signs and wonders. Uh, he's already separated himself somewhat from this uh, ministry as far as the the, uh, the women and the widows are concerned. Uh, it says, find seven men. But we will, verse number four. We will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. And again, that again, ministry is that same word diakonos that appears again at this particular point. The whole group, the saying pleased the whole multitude, and that stands right now as an all-time world record. Um, the saying pleased the whole. Everybody was happy with this decision. And they chose, the man they chose, Stephen, and specifically it says, Stephen was a man full of faith and the Holy Ghost. And we're going to hear a lot about Stephen next week, Um, and uh, because he becomes the the main character of the next couple chapters. Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Ghost. And Philip, who also becomes one of our main characters in a little bit, Philip the Evangelist, he's the one who goes to Samaria, and, and, and multitudes of people come to put their faith and trust in Christ because of Philip's ministry. And then he's going to end up going, uh, he's going to be the one that talks to the Ethiopian eunuch and so forth. Uh, Procorus, Nicanor, uh, uh, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, this would be, he'd be a Gentile, interestingly enough. Proselyte is one who was a Gentile who adopted the Jewish way of life, the Jewish customs, the Jewish religion, uh, even though he was born a Gentile. He was won over to the Jewish faith. And so here we have six men. Interestingly enough, by the way, uh, the, the, the conflict is between the Grecian women and the, uh, the, you know, the Grecian widows that are being neglected versus the Hebrew widows. Every single guy's name here is, is the Greek version of their name, okay? Every single one is, is, uh, is, is like a Grecian name. Uh, and that's kind of interesting. And of course, even one of them's a Gentile. But these are the guys that are picked, and these are the guys that are chosen. And he said they they were chosen by the crowd, and then they were set before the apostles for basically approval purposes. And uh, when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them and gave their approval. And because now the ministry is going on, and these people are, we've taken care of this, and we've taken care of this responsibility, the word of God continued to increase. The number of his disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Interesting. Verse number 12. And I'm just going to give you highlights because this is just to whet your appetite. The uh, leaders, certain of the synagogue, they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and they caught Stephen and brought him to the council. And verse 15 And they all sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, staring at him. And they saw his face that had been the face of an angel. (laughs) How awesome is that? But the program continues. And it says, the word of God, verse number 7, increased. Multiple disciples multiplied. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. This is interesting as well. The priests. Now, Caiaphas is a priest. And all these followers of Caiaphas, and these are like Sadducee-type people, and these are the people that run the temple. And where's all this stuff taking place? It's all taking place in the temple. All the teachings in the temple, all the healings in the temple, all the miracles are there in the temple, all the instructions going on in the temple. <laughs> and who's going to hear it, whether they want to hear it or not? These priests. And how do they respond? <laughs> A great number were it. And uh, some other, other sources, other historical sources, said there was as many as 8,000 priests who became believers and followers of Christ. Uh, and it says, uh, it just says, a great company of priests were obedient to the faith. Stephen, full of faith, full of power, uh, it says, and of course the power is from the Holy Spirit, verse number 5. Interestingly enough, Stephen's not an apostle. We'll mention that a little bit next week as well. Remember, they were afraid to mess with the apostles for fear that the crowd would turn on them. Stephen was kind of like a little bit mm, easier target for them, and they caught him and brought him and took him before them. I just want to say a word about deacons and elders. I've got about two minutes to do this. Um, and, and we're going to be electing deacons and elders uh, fairly soon. But the information about qualifications or, or things to look for, character qualities to look for in regards to deacons and elders, people to be in these positions of service, uh, are found in Timothy and Titus. And Paul writes, Timothy and Titus are young pastors. And he writes said, when you're looking for men to lead in the church, look for these qualities. Look for men of character. Look for men of godliness. Well, how exactly do you measure godliness? And he says, okay, well, look for these things. Uh, back up one. I, I, back up two. I think two's enough. Um, first of all, look at this. There's two categories here. Elder, Timothy, he talks, writes to Timothy about uh, elders or bishops and then about deacons. And the word for elder is presbyterous. And it it literally conjures up with it the idea. uh, It's kind of built into the word old. Um, (laughs) So, Sorry, it's just in the word. (laughs) And the other word is used as episkopos, which means bishop. These words also translate. Next one. Means overseer, guardian, teacher, shepherd, spiritual needs. So when we talk about an elder... Uh, which, which includes the pastor, okay, but elders within the church uh, and need to be those who can oversee the church. They're guardians of the church. Uh, they're teachers, they're shepherds or under-shepherds, people that care about the flock, care about the spiritual needs of God's flock, okay? So the elder is a, is a huge responsibility, and, and it, attached to it is some age and experience to it. Okay. This is what Paul has to say about it. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop must then be blameless, husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, Uh, not given to wine, uh, not a striker. That leaves Rocky out. Um, uh, Okay. It's not talking about unions, by the way. That's, the, that's it's talking, about, talking about Rocky Balboa is what we're talking about with that one. Huh? See how I did that? That was very clever. Uh, uh, not a striker, not greedy, a filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. One that rules his own house, rules well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity or seriousness. If a man does not know how to rule his own house, how can he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, and there's, and there's that idea of elder, a you know, little bit of seasoning, okay? Not a novice, lest he be lifted up with pride and he fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them that are outside, a good testimony outside the church, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Now, there's other instructions, similar ones in, in Titus chapter 1 uh, and also Peter chapter, 1 Peter chapter 5. But the deacon, and, and there's our word deacon. It's interesting that the diaconos word, okay, is used thirty times in Scripture, thirty times in the, in the New Testament. Three times it's it's used to, for deacon. The other twenty-seven, it's for ministry service. You know, like we've just seen it used here in these uh, in these first four verses of chapter of chapter six. So it has to do again. The deacon's responsibility is. He's a servant. He's a minister. He takes care of physical needs. Also, a short form of the word diakonos means one who runs errands. And literally, you know, my understanding of a deacon is one who says, Pastor, how can I help? What can I do to help you? How can I help? How can I assist? What can we do? And this is the idea of, okay, so you don't have to distribute the food to the widows, I'll do that, I'll be willing to do that, I can can do that, I can help out, how can I help you? How can I free you up to do the job that God wants you to do? And so the elders are more of a ruling, caring for the spiritual well-being of the flock of God. Deacons are more on the idea of, man, how can I help you? How can I serve you? What can we do to make this easier? So uh, taking care of more of the physical needs of things as well. However, what's interesting even though you say, well, that seems like a lesser responsibility, the requirements are still pretty stringent because the continuation here is likewise, okay, um, all these things true of the elder, likewise the deacons need to be serious. they not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre. The pay is not really good as far as uh, church board members are concerned. Um holding the mystery of faith in pure conscience, and let those first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Even so, must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful, and all things. It's kind of interesting. Uh, it's almost like when you're selecting a deacon, someone to help out, uh, you're selecting his wife too. So there's requirements for... The wife, wives must be grave, not slanderous, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their houses well. And so, again, these are some of the, uh, some of the ones and the responsibilities are there. Um, and so they're still men of character. And what happened is the idea that with responsibilities in the church, again, there's good, better, best. And it's like, what is best for this one individual to do? And again, the simplest thing is the more people that are involved, every single one of you in this room, especially if you're a believer, you have a spiritual gift that God has given you. There is some way that you can assist and some way that you can help this church. Uh, and, and the way this is supposed to work, you join with this fellowship, you join with this body, and, and the abilities that you have enhance our ministry here. And then what we have to offer helps you grow in your spiritual walk as well. So both parties are... Uh, you know you you contribute to us we contribute to you and both both parties end up benefiting and again in many many cases in many many situations i come across pastors that would agree with the statement that you know you got in most churches you got 10% of the people doing 90% of the work and i would have to say that is not true of factorville bible church i do not think that is true because when it comes to ministries like the Passive Forward Shop, when it comes to ministries like the camp, when it comes to other ministries, and even the school, things, we go all in. And I would say we have 90% of the people doing 90% of the work, and I'm thankful for that. And that's what this is supposed to be. That's how a church is supposed to function. Uh, certain roles, certain responsibilities, and, but it still requires character. And this deacon and elder thing requires character. It's not a... It's not a uh, it's not a uh, popularity contest. It's these are These are men of character, whether they're serving as deacon or whether they're serving as elder, likewise, likewise. So, Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at your word this morning. Thank you, Lord, for this mention in your word in regards to Stephen and these others who took on this responsibility and evidently handled it well so that they could go on with the business of of sharing the word of God in the church, increasing and multiplying, and people getting involved in ministry and service. Father, give us the right heart, give us the right spirit in regards to this matter of service that we might seek to please you and serve you and not serve self. And again, Lord, thank you for uh, the examples that have been set forth. Thank you for the things that we can learn. Help us with the Sunday school time that follows that we would have much... We would learn many things that would be helpful to us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this opportunity to hear the word preached at Factoryville Bible Church. Factoryville Bible Church is a non-denominational church in Athens, Michigan, that seeks to share the good news of the gospel through a number of ministries in the area, including Factoryville Christian School, Camp Elvin, and the Passive Forward Shop. To learn more about the ministries of Factoryville Bible Church or to support the mission of our church, visit our website at factoryvillebiblechurch.com. Thank you.